So we are back in Exodus chapter 20, and as we have been doing, we will begin at verse 1 and read up to and through the commandment that we are dealing with, and tonight that would be Exodus 20, verse 14. It's on page 118 in your pew Bibles, otherwise the words will be on the screen. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our culture struggles a lot with the sin forbidden in this commandment. You don't have to look far to see the devastation that inevitably comes when people choose to disregard God's command against adultery. It tears marriages apart, it tears families apart, it tears churches apart, it tears communities apart. This is a sin that we struggle with in our church, as well as in our marriages and in our families. We struggle with this sin both explicitly and implicitly, both outwardly and also inwardly. And our culture, I would say particularly with regard to this sin, is no help whatsoever. For example, one of the values that is dearly held by our culture is that our faith and our convictions should be a private matter. In other words, hey, my personal life is none of your business. Now, historically, this kind of a statement was aimed at the government, not God. Now, have you ever heard the statement, hey, keep the government out of my bedroom? We do not want the government involved in our personal lives and our personal choices. They have no business doing that. It violates our boundaries. But you know, for God, who created us, who sustains us, who gives us our every breath, who has put his claim on absolutely every area of our lives, I hate to say it, but those boundaries do not apply. God claims the right to dictate the boundaries and the nature of our sexual activity. In fact, 
our behavior, our activity in the realm of sexual uh, activity and expression is an important index of our spiritual health and our relationship with God, which is why he says in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Like the command that precedes it, no murder, the seventh commandment contains a brief but strong negative. No adultery, it's as simple as that. Based on all the other laws demarcating the appropriate boundaries of sexual expression, the Old Testament makes very clear that God is very concerned about sexual purity. He is concerned about healthy, strong families, and he is concerned about his honor and glory in the world as reflected by his people. This commandment also beautifully highlights the concept of covenant loyalty. The Old Testament teaches and the New Testament confirms that marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Loyalty in a marriage requires sexual exclusivity to one another, husband to wife and wife to husband. So marriage is a covenant. And because marriage is a covenant, God's word views all sexual sin as covenant disloyalty. Now that sounds very serious because it is very serious. Now in the first four commandments, what has God required of us? He has required exclusive covenant loyalty and commitment to him. Worship no other gods, worship him his way, reverence his name, honor his day. Now, in the context of our human life and experience, he says, show absolute covenant commitment to your spouse as well. He calls us to sexual purity. And the connection makes perfect sense when you think about it. In the prophetic writings, when God wants to illustrate Israel's disloyalty to him, the metaphor often used is that of an adulterous spouse. Why? Because a covenant requires commitment. And when we are disloyal, when we are sexually unfaithful to a spouse, we violate that covenant in the deepest way that it can be violated. Therefore, God says that your faithfulness in the marriage relationship is a picture of the faithful covenant relationship that you have with him. The two go hand in hand. And the Apostle Paul actually fleshes that out in those famous wedding words from Ephesians chapter 5, where he says that the marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the union that exists between Christ and his church. In other words, fidelity in marital relationships is to mirror our fidelity to God. Consider these words again, as Zach already mentioned them in his message to the kids. These words from Psalm 51, verse 4. This is David in a song that he writes to God, a prayer that he writes to God in the aftermath of this this falling on his face with regard to Bathsheba. He says in verse 4, 
against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judged. In the story of David's affair with Bathsheba, it is obvious that David sinned against Bathsheba. It's also obvious that he sinned against her husband, Uriah. Why then would David have prayed, against you, you only have I sinned? Is David praying this prayer to Bathsheba or to Uriah? No, he is praying this prayer to God because he understands that first and foremost, his sexual infidelity, his adultery was an act of disloyalty to God and had damaged his relationship with God. He's not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba. He's not denying that he sinned against Uriah either. He is affirming that most important, his sexual immorality compromised his loyalty to God. Stated positively, our obedience to the second, seventh commandment reinforces our loyalty to God. There is a connection between our loyalty to God and our sexual purity. Which means that our sexuality has a depth of significance far greater than simply procreation or pleasure. God designed it as the most beautiful expression of intimacy that can be experienced. But look, according to God's design and purposes, intimacy is never to be separated from commitment, whether it is intimacy with God or intimacy with a spouse. There is to be no sexual gratification apart from and outside of covenant loyalty. And you know, that protects both men and women. Paul provides something of an explanation in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 5, where he says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul makes very clear that the expression of sexual experience in our physical bodies is something which deeply concerns our spouse and our bodies themselves. And marriage is the only God-given context for appropriate sexual expression. There is to be no sexual expression apart from the covenant commitment, which protects, as I said, both men and women. It protects families. And it is the reason why God chose adultery as an image of human disloyalty to himself. So to sum up thus far... Sexual purity is an expression of our love for God and our loyalty to God. Sexual purity is also an expression of our love and loyalty to our spouse or our future spouse, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But it comes down to this. 
We have no right to give to someone who is not our spouse that which belongs exclusively to our spouse. But here's where things get more difficult. Jesus deepens and expands the seventh commandment in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now it is clear in this passage that Jesus is concerned for believers to be holy and pure, not only in their outward life, but also in their inward life as well. We must strive to be inwardly pure with regard to our sexual behavior. And so, based on what Jesus said, it is not enough to abstain from physical adultery. Jesus wants so much more than that. And Jesus has laid claim on so much more than that. He wants us to be pure in our hearts and in our thoughts and in our thinking as well. There's more than one way to break the seventh commandment. And Jesus goes right to the issue of lust. He says that adultery is, first of all, a heart issue. It flows from unguarded thinking. It flows from unchecked desires, and it becomes a vicious pattern. What we lust for with our eyes affects the desires of our hearts, and our hearts, in turn, also determine to an extent what we begin to lust after with our eyes. In other words, it is impossible, really, to compartmentalize our lives, even though many of us try to do so, especially when it comes to sexual immorality type of sins. Sin in one area of life is going to spill over and affect other areas of life as well. And in that way, one unchecked sin can derail an entire life. And brothers and sisters, you have seen it happen. With regard to adultery, I know that you have. One sin leads to one course of action that derails an entire life. And so like a fire and brimstone preacher, Jesus connects lust with hell. Why does he do that? Because he knows how powerful this sin can be. People who are caught up in sexual sins will do anything in their power to deny that they have a problem. Sexual sin in particular involves shame and secrecy. It is not something that people feel comfortable struggling with openly, which is why it is so dangerous. 
which is why Jesus connects it with hell and said, this is the kind of sin that can take such a hold of your soul that it can lead to hell. And look, before you criticize Jesus for being so harsh or perhaps overstating the issue, understand that Jesus' ultimate concern is not moral purity. Jesus' ultimate concern is our salvation, and he realizes that sexual sins can take such a hold on our heart that they can separate us from God. For that reason, Jesus tells us to be absolutely ruthless when it comes to lust, when it comes to the inward dimension of sexual immorality, and he uses graphic language to make his point. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Jesus treats sexual sin with deadly earnest, and we would be wise to cultivate the same perspective. So as we move from exposition to application, let me just mention three areas that deserve our attention with regard to moral purity. Consider first the issue of modesty. And fair or not, I'm speaking particularly to women here. And part of the reason why I'm speaking particularly to women here is because I am trapped in a certain perspective. I am trapped in the perspective of a man. So I'm gonna pick on the girls first. Look, regardless of how you dress, you are beautiful and attractive to men. That is not the issue. It's not the issue at all. I say that because I want you to know that men are paying attention to you. But that said, you have the power to shape the way that men think about you. If you dress in provocative ways, you will get the wrong kind of attention objectifying yourselves in the eyes of others and potentially causing the men in your life to stumble. Immodesty, whether it be out of intentionality or out of carelessness, sends conflicting messages to those who, as I said, are already paying attention to you. When your clothing or behavior draws attention from your face and from your eyes where you can be treated as a person of substance and a person of intelligence and dignity and to those parts of your body which arouse sexual desire. You are asking for trouble. You're asking to put yourself into situations where you lose control and you are also causing others to stumble. So that's modesty. Secondly, Let's consider the issue of premarital sex. Now, I've been in conversations with people, particularly earlier on in my life when I was younger and I had young friends who were on the prowl for attractive girls. But looking back, I realize that we have an extraordinary capacity and creativity when it comes to justifying our behavior. Do we not? Some people argue that because adultery deals primarily with the realm of marriage, if you are unmarried, 
Adultery does not really apply to sexual misbehavior. Why is it that so many people live together in our day and age? Why is it that that dating relationships and the social media that, that kind of encourages it, why are they so out of control? Because if you apply adultery just to a marriage relationship, and if you can stay away from a marriage relationship, then all bets are off, right? But here's the truth. From a biblical standpoint, Old and New Testaments, all sex outside of marriage constitutes disloyalty to God and disloyalty to our future partner. It matters a lot. And it has implications beyond what we can even imagine. So since I picked on the girls with the issue of modesty, we will pick on young men with regard to premarital sex. Young men, do you or will you treat the girls that you date the way that you want your future spouse to be be treated by the guys that she dates? So your future spouse is in the same dating world that you are now. Are you treating your dates the way that you want your future wife's dates to be treating her? I mean, someday God is gonna bring the two of you together. So do you or, or will you respect and honor women in that way that you want your future spouse to be treated? Premarital sex, regardless of how we try to justify it, is a violation of God's commands. Finally, let's consider the issue of pornography, which according to statistics is a problem that affects over half of the population in this country today. Now, for many years now, pornography has been a pervasive problem and challenge for men. But in recent years, women are struggling more and more with it as well. And actually, with regard to greater society, pornography has become a serious concern for Christians and non-Christians alike. Social scientists, as well as Christian leaders, are sounding the alarm on this. That pornography is destructive to relationships, that it compromises our ability to connect with each other in healthy ways. From a Christian perspective, this sin, which is obviously covered under the adultery commandment, puts you on a fast track to committing idolatry as well. Because idolatry does what? It divides the loyalties of the heart. Instead of the heart being undivided in loyalty to the one true God, pornography seduces us to love and worship and find gratification in something that is not God, in something that in fact is expressly forbidden by God. Another destructive behavior that goes along with pornography is secrecy. It's not the kind of thing that someone outwardly shares with a spouse or with friends or with parents or with children. People go to great lengths to hide it. And that secrecy, too, leads to a divided life, which leads to a destructive state of being, the state of isolation. Because pornography isolates those who struggle with it. 
It teaches and conditions people to seek their gratification isolated from any other relationship. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God did not design us this way? We were meant to experience gratification in fellowship with God first and gratification sexually and emotionally in fellowship with our spouse second. And when we find that kind of gratification alone rather than in fellowship, we create this barrier to ever experiencing it in fellowship with God or with a spouse. So brothers and sisters, are you taking precautions to protect yourselves from adultery? As single people, as spouses, as parents, Are you doing the work of weeding out of your lives anything that could tempt you or others to sexual immorality? The seventh commandment tells us to be sexually pure in what we think and what we say and what we do and to do all in our power to help others to be sexually pure as well. We need help in this area. We need mutual accountability We need the church to be a place where people can be open about their struggles and be accepted and encouraged and walked with and helped. That takes courage. But we need that kind of mutual accountability to make the progress we are called to make in this area. We need mutual accountability, children being accountable to parents, Friends being accountable to friends. Husbands and wives being accountable to each other. All of us being accountable to and dependent on God through Jesus Christ, who promises by his spirit to provide the strength we need to resist temptation. Amen. Let's pray.